This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Thursday, November 1st, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Guys, you're in luck. I have the Greek public opinion polls in my hand. The polling is in. Pew has done the polling. And we get to learn what the Greeks think about themselves and the gays and the Jews. The other day I heard in reporting this on NPR, the comment that Greece was unlike other Western European countries. It's more like some of the former Soviet republics, especially when you ask them to respond to this statement, quote, our people are not perfect, but in general, our culture is superior to others. Now, if you ask this in France or the UK, you get a 45% of people saying, yeah, I agree with that. But in Greece, 89% of the people agree. Now, I heard this and I was maybe about to castigate the Greeks. Is that a Greek word? I hope. I hope it's not Latinate. I, if I was really skilled, I'd do all my verbs in Greek uh, during this segment. But I was about to castigate the Greeks, but then I realized, you know, Maybe their culture is superior to others. They have given us so much, like democracy and three kinds of columns. Okay, I'll give them a pass on that one. But then the pride and the attitudes get a little less justified. Seven in 10 Greek adults say a strong Russia is necessary to balance the influence of the West. Influence of the West will allow the former Soviet agents who we exchange to live. Influence of Russia, they have a different opinion on that. In Greece, the belief in God with absolute certainty, 59%. 59% of Greeks say, we know there's a God. Of course, if they had done polling a few years ago, maybe a couple thousand years ago, I bet Zeus would be doing even better numbers than that. Favor same-sex marriage. Rest of Western Europe, 75%. Greece, 26%. This one jumped out at me. Would welcome a Jew as a member of the family. Guess what it is in Greece? 35%. And here we will end with the definitive data on the Greeks and the evil eye. <laughs> yes, belief in the evil eye. The matiasma, I believe the Greeks call it. Matiasma. Greece and Latvia have the highest rate of believing in the evil eye at 66%. They're pretty much in line. In fact, they outstrip other Central and Eastern European countries like Ukraine and Armenia and Moldova and Russia and Bulgaria which all range between 60 to 55% in belief in the evil eye. Do you want to know the country that has the lowest belief in the evil eye? It is Sweden. It is Sweden. The Italians call it Malocchio, and the Swedes call it just laughable. Oh, Greece, you invented democracy. The U.S. reinvented it, and now both are struggling to keep the brand alive. I would say at most, 35% of Greeks would find it amusing when I give this whole thing an evil oi. On the show today, I spiel about a Trump-prompted ad that some are saying is racist and that others are saying, well, of course it's racist. Trump put it out in the ether. But first, we may debate Pabst versus an IPA or Musili versus cornflakes or gold versus Bitcoin. I think all of these debates are getting at the same dynamic that the authors of a new book called Prius versus pickup are looking at the divide between red and blue America, the attitudes and preferences that explain this divide that often have nothing to do with policy. 
professors Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Weiler are up next. Twenty, maybe 25 years ago, Chris Matthews, back when he was more of a writer than a talking head, wrote an article for the New Republic, and he called the Democrats the mommy party and the Republicans the daddy party. George Lakoff, who's a linguist, revised that slightly. He was okay with calling the Republicans the daddy party or the stern father figures. He would always call the Democrats the nurturing parents because I guess he didn't want to uh, gender that assignment. So we've always had these notions, but these notions have become more refined and more pronounced. And there's a new book which looks at this general idea, and it is by a pair of political scientists and researchers who have been uh, offering fascinating ways to look at politics in America. They are Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Weiler, and the book is Prius or pickup? How the answers to four simple questions explain America's great divide. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having so us. this is one of these books, really one of these subtitles that forces the interviewer's hand. <laughs> All right, uh, Prius or pickup is one question, right? What are the other, well, what are the f- other three? Actually, yeah. it's not uh, Prius or pickup. Um, the questions, and this is the thing I think that's so powerful about these questions, they're about raising kids. Um, what are the uh, characteristics that you want your children to have? Do you want them to be independent and curious, or do you want them to be uh, folks who are obedient and respect their elders? Um, and what we found is that these four questions that you know reveal people's basic outlook on the world, whether we should be organized in sort of a hierarchical way or a more horizontal way, is something that maps perfectly onto politics these days. Of course, the Republicans are the more hierarchical, you know, uh, respect your elders, obedient kids kind of thing, and the Democrats uh, uh, tend towards uh, the opposite direction with, you know, self-reliant, curious uh, kids like that. But the interesting thing about this, Mike, is it's not just politics that these questions help us understand. It's everybody's personal choices, too. Whether you prefer a Prius or a pickup is yeah. a function of those four questions, too. Whether you like Folgers or whether you like Pete's Coffee, whether you like Sierra Nevada or whether you like Bud Light. Yeah. During the election, right around the time of the election, a study came out and it was framed as uh, the best indicator of if you support Trump is exactly your parenting questions. The study was framed as if you believe in authoritarian parenting methods, which I think was an inaccurate way to explain the parenting methods, Mm -hmm. you're likely to have supported Trump and it gained fire because the word authoritarian there and the word Trump was there. And I was saying, and I was just waiting for someone to point this out, is all you've done is said, if you're more conservative, you voted for Trump. What is the huge insight? So uh, it's a good question. Uh, And I think the, the first important thing to say about this is that, as Mark said a moment ago, we've always had different worldviews, right? We've always had people who have been more attracted to the novel uh, and those who are more attracted to, more comfortable with the tried and true. What has not always been true is that those preferences for worldview have aligned so well with the two political parties, right? Yes. So, right. So 25 or 30 years ago, 
authoritarians, as we used to call them, uh, were as likely to be Democrat as Republican, and likewise non-authoritarian were as likely to be Republican as Democrat. So the sorting, I mean, in some ways, what you're picking up on, what seems so obvious and intuitive now, is actually the end of a long and fascinating and consequential story yes. of political sorting that's taken place right. so over basically, the past few decades. Basically, what you've done, what the questions do, mm-hmm. what questions about parenting tell you is a very good proxy for are you conservative or are you liberal? And when the parties used to be not a perfect mix, but more of a mix of those things, mm-hmm. didn't map onto the parties. Exactly. Now that we call them Republican, we call them Democrat, we could just call them conservative and liberal. Mm-hmm. Now all of the ideas about conservatism those comport with republicanism and the ideas, if you are a, have a liberal worldview, they comport with liberalism. Right. And, and I'd add one piece to that, too. What's different about this day and age is we're divided about different things. You know, you know let's say we have a, a real, you know, strong identification with our tribe. We're actually probably more to the point. We really hate our opponent now. Yes. Okay. So that's really the, the key point. And the reason we hate our opponent is because we look at them. They don't have the same worldview as us. They seem like a bunch of aliens. You know, we disagree with them on all these hot button issues and they don't drink the right beer and they don't drive the right cars and they don't do, you know, all of these other things. They don't live in the right place. They don't go to church or they do go to church. We don't have the same kind of contact with each other that we used to when our communities, when our party communities were not divided by worldview. Republicans are simply not coming into contact with Democrats in the country very much. Democrats are not coming into contact with Republicans in the cities very much. And instead of those stereotypes that are developing being challenged, they're being hardened. And, you know, that's making people view the other side as less human. You know, we have some data in there that suggests that Republicans hate the Democratic Party more than they hate atheists. Mm -hmm. Um, Democrats hate the Republican Party uh, more than they hate Christian fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. That's a tough situation to overcome. Um, The only, you know, scores of hatred that we see that are anything like this is the way people used to view um, people who riot in cities in the 1970s. There was actually a survey question about that um, back then. That's the way Republicans and Democrats view each other these days. How do you overcome that? Can I just say, so you're saying Republicans, (laughs) wait, in the ranking of atheists, rioters, and Democrats, atheists do best among Republicans? They definitely do better than (laughs) Democrats. What about rioters? Rioters or atheists? They haven't been asking about rioters since the 70s. (laughs) That's a good question. Based on what we've been hearing from Mitch McConnell and others this week. Oh, they're the same people. Exactly. Rioters are Democrats. Democrats. And atheists, probably. (laughs) Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think a lot of my listeners will say, oh, yes, Republicans are conservatives who we are calling fixed. That's your term. Oh, they definitely think of us versus them. The other people, that might be a verb some of my listeners might use. But does it, isn't it also true in the other direction for there to be negative partisanship and Democrats really hate Republicans? Aren't they pretty fixed and non-fluid in their opinions of Republicans? Us versus them yes. is not a, no. a monopoly on one oh, side of this. Not God, at no. all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, Jonathan and I think we could, you know, make pretty uh, good argument that the people who have given us a harder time about this book is the people on the left who simply don't want to hear um, that they're part of the problem, too. Right. Um, and, you know, with that in mind, you know, their, their opinions are fixed. But their approach to the world is, you know, it's okay if it changes. It, it's, you know, it can yeah. move away from old traditions and right, things right. like that. Since your four questions that explain the divider parenting questions, I want to ask you about that. 
politics is to some extent handed down from generation to generation. I bet you guys know all the latest. There are so many fights about to what extent that's true and what's the correlation. But parenting styles are also handed down from generation. I raise my kids the way I was raised. Is one more correlative than another? So here's a a thing that is a very useful thing to think about and something that has been really humbling to us, um, both as, you know, researchers, but also as parents. And that is, it's really the values that we have in our kids that are important. Um, So in other words, you know, you could have people who really, you know, value independence and curiosity, but in their actual parenting life, they spank the crap out of their kids. Uh Uh-huh. Um, that seems rare. It seems like your parenting it, style is uh, the presentation of the underlying belief, mostly. It seems like it would be. Yeah. Um, but it does seem to be the aspiration, you know, as opposed to the actual style. So there is a terrific book written in the 2005 by a scholar named Karen Stenner, and she shows the actual parenting style is unpredictive of people's politics. Really? But the parenting preferences, you know, what you aspire to be want for your children um, is the thing that's predictive. We didn't quite get that um, at the beginning. We were thinking about it very much like you were. Yeah, and I would say this is one of the things that makes these four parenting questions so curious and interesting uh, is that they do seem to provide a very good proxy uh, for, as Mark put it, our sort of aspiration and vision for the world more than they describe how we raise our own kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to ask you about the demographics of people with a more fixed parenting style. Um, Not style, but parenting worldview. And maybe that's going to be the uh, answer to my question. But from what I've read, Asian Americans have a stricter worldview, yet they tend to be Mm -hmm. liberal Democrats. And also African Americans Mm -hmm. are more fixed in terms of parenting, but they're overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. liberal Democrats. Explain that. So this is a really key question to ask. It's, you know, maybe the most important question to ask um, as it relates to this. What we find in our research is this worldview is what's dividing white specifically. Um, But it's not that um, minorities, whether ethnic or racial, are unimportant. In fact, they're extraordinarily important. What we find is that their identities as group members, as Asian Americans, as African Americans, as Hispanic Americans, is the real key here. Yeah. So why are the Republicans able to attract fixed worldview whites? Well, one of the key ways of doing it is by running their campaigns against people who are different, African Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans, sort of in the background. What kind of a good deal would it be if you're an African-American who's fixed in worldview to say, oh, yeah, let's go along with the Republicans despite the fact that they're saying our youth have no spirit um, and things along those lines? Right. Maybe if you didn't – in other words, maybe if you didn't actively denigrate us, maybe we'd hearken to your message. You're right. Well, and in fact, for years, Republicans have been saying based on cultural values, et cetera, there should be a natural affinity between many communities of color on a board. The ones in good faith who uh, don't have to win the next election. Well, that's right, but Mm -hmm. but based on religiosity and things like that that fantastic Saturday Night Live skit, Black Jeopardy, right? And the one in particular where Tom Hanks plays Doug, 
you know, the, the, the white Make America Great Again guy. And as they go through the episode, every question, the, the black host and the other black contestants warm up to him. As they realize how much they have in common in terms of basic sensibility until they get to the final Jeopardy category, which is... Lives that matter! <laughs> Well, it was good while it lasted, Doug. <laughs> I know I got a lot to say about this. Yeah, I'm sure you do. When we come back. So perhaps people would say, oh, what you're trying to say is that uh, an effective Democrat should speak fixed to reach out to Republicans or an effective Republican should know how Democrats speak and can maybe talk a little fluid. Yet the most effective Republican, or at least the one in the White House, didn't speak fluid for a second from what I can tell. (laughs) But from what you know and from what all your research shows you, what would be the optimal way to play this if what you want is a chance at, say, winning back the Senate? But also laying the groundwork for some real progress in terms of um, women's rights and sexual equality. Well, one thing that I'll say that I think is really important is it depends. Mm -hmm. It depends on the state. Um, You know, I live, um, or I've lived, I've just moved to North Carolina from Tennessee. There's a relatively competitive, it seemed like very competitive Senate race going on there between Phil Bredesen and Marsha Blackburn. Um, Phil Bredesen is a moderate Democrat in a red state. I mean, it's a state that Trump won by 15 or 20 percentage points. He can't embrace the uh, Me Too movement, um, that movement is not going to be helpful to a Democrat like that. And in fact— Certainly not in the same way. Not in the same way. He has said he would have voted for Kavanaugh, but at the same time, I think voters in Tennessee— the news is national. They see protesters banging on the Supreme Court door. Mm -hmm. We just saw a poll where he was up by one and now he's down by 12. That's Mm -hmm. one or two polls. But that does seem to be the trend. But this is the thing that's so tough, I think, for Democrats. And, you know, I think— there's something about this sort of fluid worldview um, that's distinctive and different from the conservatives. The fluid get disappointed by anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not quite right. You know, he didn't quite take the right position on this, that, or the other thing. Everybody's upset. They're more Everybody's likely to make arms. the perfect the enemy. They the want good. the, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. conservatives, fixed worldview people are like, I'm still in line. I mean, think about the coffee orders of your, you know, average, um, Liberal. Um, I <laughs> oh mean, no! Now you're David Brooks ordering a sandwich in a store territory. <laughs> all I'm, all I'm saying, get, you're going to get dragged. <laughs> all I'm saying um, is, you know, they're not a black coffee with two sugars. Yeah. Um, and so there's, you know, there's something to that. And there might be another element too, which is that I think there's probably a greater likelihood that conservatives are ultimately just willing to fall in line, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas liberals are, it is like herding cats. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, which is also not to say uh, that liberals can't rationalize and make excuses for their preferred politicians mm-hmm. because oh. they do plenty of that too. Mm-hmm. But I do think in general, conservatives are, they are better organized in many senses of that word mm-hmm. than Democrats are. Here's my last question. You have undoubtedly seen all the surveys of products and which products are Democrat, which products. And I've, I, I love the ones that seem weird and I try to figure it out. I read that the most liberal or democratically skewed consumer beverage is an IPA. And that shocked me. Why would that be? So there's some data that suggests that liberals and conservatives may have different taste receptors. 
I um, love this. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, certain things that taste sharp and unpleasant uh, to some people don't taste that way to others. So you think about, you know, George H.W. Bush, he didn't like broccoli. Yeah. Um, uh, that's actually a thing that that taste receptor would, um, you know, not really appreciate um, very much. You know, that, that flavor would be strange. Um, Barack Obama was the arugula president. Um, you know, so, and you know, you see bumper stickers on Priuses saying that they love kale. Kale. Um, kale it's terrible. You can't love kale. <laughs> you can't love kale. You can understand up, saying it's good for you, but love that, kale? I, that, this is that, that's saying. a good example of a profession of identity yeah. more than a statement about taste. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's probably a combination of things. You know, there are some pretty interesting findings, I think, in our book that suggest, you know, politics actually may be, you know, run deeper even than the brain. Um, it may be in our nervous systems in certain ways, these taste receptors, these other things. And, you know, if that's true, I mean, it's really hard for people to understand each other. Yeah. Well, let's leave on that note, that it's mostly about taste receptors. <laughs> Cal. Cal virtue signaling. <laughs> Prius or pickup, how the answers to four simple questions explain America's great divide, written by professors Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Weiler. They teach at UNC. They each do. They both do. Thank you, guys. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. You know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions, too. Go to Slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. And now the spiel. Donald Trump, president of the United States, tweeted an ad out yesterday. There was a murderer in this ad. The murderer was in this country illegally, and the murderer has vowed to murder more people than he's murdered already. Here are some headlines. CNN. Trump shocks with racist new ad before midterms. Washington Post, Trump's new ad linking killer to Democrats called far worse than infamous Willie Horton ad. And ad age, Trump releases new sickening racist campaign ad. That is ad age. They're the magazine for ads. They are the ad industry Bible. And remember, the ad industry, they're the ones who brought us head on. Put it directly where it hurts and cars for kids. So is this Trump ad racist? Yeah, of course it's racist. But that's not even the worst part. It's just so glaringly stupid and wrong. It is factually inaccurate fear mongering. And in one detail, it omits a fact that is so head smackingly applied directly where it hurts. Head smackingly appalling. You're not going to believe it if you haven't heard it already. Actually, it's Trump. You're totally going to believe it. So here's the issue. Luis Bracamontes, who was in the U.S. illegally, is a convicted cop killer. But the ads say Democrats let him in and Democrats let him back. True, if you ignore the Republicans who let him in and let him back also. Bracamontes entered and was deported, came back and was deported, 
and returned and was arrested and is now serving time for his murders. He crossed the border illegally while Bill Clinton was president and was deported while Bill Clinton was president. He crossed the border illegally while George W. Bush was president and then was deported when George W. Bush was president. And then he came back while George W. Bush was still president. Four years ago, he was convicted at trial for killing a couple of California policemen. But guess who detained Bracamontes for a time in 1998? I will read from the Sacramento Bee Report. Records in Arizona show he was arrested on drug charges again in Phoenix in 1998, then released, quote, for reasons unknown by Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And then it adds, Arpaio is a Republican. Yeah, like almost half Americans are Republicans. Twelve received pardons from Trump. I would say that's more salient to this issue. So this is this is just a lie. I was a little shocked by how shocked that everyone was with this lie. I guess it shows that we still have the ability to be shocked, and that's good. President Trump every week highlights an immigrants are dangerous story. The caravan. He instituted the Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement Unit within the Department of Homeland Security. Their job is simply to tell the public about all the crimes immigrants commit. Just immigrants. Even though immigrants are not any more likely to commit crimes than people who are here legally. This summer, a woman in Iowa was murdered quite tragically, and the Republicans pointed to the fact that her murderer was in this country illegally. And at the time, Newt Gingrich said, he, he wrote an email to Axios, and he said, you should cover this more. And this was his argument, quote, if Molly Tibbetts, that's the girl who was murdered, is a household name by October, Democrats will be in deep trouble. That did not come to pass. Molly Tibbetts was tragically killed and her killer was in this country legally. But especially after the Tibbetts family objected to their daughter and their relative being politicized, the story wound up not providing the foul wind beneath the Republican wings. But the president tweeting this ad is pretty horrible. Shouldn't be surprising. Still horrible. I think it is worse than the Willie Horton ad, by the way but not really because of racial sensitivity issues. So let us go back and let's remember what the Willie Horton ad said. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. That version was actually put out by the National Security Political Action Committee, which was supporting George H.W. Bush in 1998, but it couldn't be officially aligned with George H.W. Bush. The thing is, it was because Lee Atwater, the campaign Svengali, was pretty much in charge of both campaigns. He was calling the shots there. And officially with the Bush campaign, they produced this version of Willie Horton scaremongering. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out... Many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape, and many are still at large. Now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. America can't afford that risk. I gotta say, looking back on these ads, they seem by today's standards rote. As I was searching the internet to call up the the archives of these ads, I got some pop-up ads about races going on now that targeted me, and they made 
Kirsten Gillibrand seem a lot worse than Willie Horton. Far worse is said about so many people, so many times, in so many forums today than was said about Willie Horton, who really was a rapist and a murderer. He never called himself Willie, though. He says he went by William. And the Willie Horton ad is actually closer to the facts than the Bracamontes one. There was a prison furlough program in place when Dukakis became governor. First-degree murderers were not eligible. Then a Massachusetts court said, essentially, why not? So then the Massachusetts legislature said, because we said so, and then Dukakis vetoed that. So, you know, because of the Dukakis veto, Horton was eligible for these weekend passes, and on a weekend pass, he committed these crimes. Also, let us note, this is largely forgotten in history, the Dukakis campaign struck back by cutting their own ad, blaming the Reagan-Bush federal program. You know, Bush was vice president at the time, so everything that happened in federal prisons, of course, accrues to him. And they blamed the federal furlough program for a murder by a man named Angel or possibly Angel Medrano. They had their own boogeyman. So if the claim was that the Willie Horton ad wasn't as bad as the ad that Trump just tweeted, that is true. But it's not only because the latest Trump ad was much, much more misleading. It was also because the original Willie Horton ad was, you know, somewhat true. It would probably, if there were the ratings services that there are today, if they existed back then, I would imagine that ad would get like a one Pinocchio or a half true. There is another reason, a practical reason, why Trump's latest tweet is worse. And it's because the president tweeted it. Back then, you had to work overtime. So much of what is seen as the evil genius of Lee Atwater wasn't just that he invented the ad, but that he found a way to get it into the nation's circulation. That's so easy today. Trump just injects it himself. Let me read from a contemporaneous account of the Willie Horton ad. The only remaining question for Bush strategists was how to get their anti-Dukakis message out before the general public. If they directly attacked Dukakis, their campaign could suffer a backlash from people upset over negative campaigning. That tactic could risk their quest for the presidency. Increasingly in the 1980s, the American public had grown weary of attack politics. Negative ads and tough rhetoric made the country feel badly about itself. Politicians who employed such tactics sometimes saw public support for their campaigns disappear overnight. Yeah, negativity made the country feel badly about itself. Now, not being negative makes us feel depressed. And the 80s called, they want their niceties back. The latest Trump ad is also worse, or at least more pernicious in a way, because no one even has to pay to put it on the air. While the Horton ads certainly benefited from a lot of free media. They themselves became a debating point and the media focused on the ad and asked questions about the ad. There was still a considerable ad buy backing the airing of that commercial. That is not the case today. Trump, without a care for giving offense, can reach hundreds of millions of people. And without a thought of paying a dime, he could do the same. It is a win-win for the scaremonger-in-chief Although I would like to note, I am not playing the ad, though everyone else in America will. Now, here's a reason why the latest ad that Trump put out might not be as bad. I don't mean morally, but I mean effectively. And it's that these days, 
everything, every message, any single message is just crowded out in an age of media saturation, an age that Trump has greatly contributed to. Trump has inundated us with such a wave of bullshit that we can't even distinguish one turd from the next. Even those Americans who welcome the wave of bullshit, right? So I'm not talking about people who strap on the snorkel of truth. I'm talking about people who are eagerly fields awaiting fertilization. Each individual fleck just gets lost. It is a stark contrast to the era of the Horton ad. A few years after the 88 campaign, a political scientist, Tali Mendelberg, looked back. Now, it was the case that Bush had been talking about Horton as an issue for a while, but it just never got picked up. He just couldn't get the media to cover it. For months, from June through October, he talked about it in speeches. He referenced it. You know, Al Gore actually brought up Willie Horton to Michael Dukakis during the Democratic primary. But there was no way for a president, a Republican president, to put whatever he wanted to on the agenda. There was no right-wing echo chamber to amplify what was ever in the president's mind, or, as is the case with the caravan, to take the place of the presidential briefing and put items into the president's mind. The biggest thing that has changed since 1988 has nothing to do with the specifics of two ads. It has everything to do with the generalities of the age. To prove my point, let me quote from a description of that study that I just mentioned by uh, Tally Mendelberg. In the age of equality, politicians cannot prime race with impunity due to a norm of racial equality that prohibits racist speech, yet incentives to appeal to white voters remain strong. I would say the second part of that statement is true, and the first seems to be out on furlough. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. They are constantly debating Prius versus pickup versus server versus X. TJ Raphael is the gist senior producer. She is stuck on Clarendon versus Ludwig. The gist. I think the dialectic is this. I have no favorite in this fight. I do believe it is time to choose Whitney versus Whitley. Got to pick one, people. The reckoning is nigh. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.